0: To the power of sports podcast where the jocks meet the geeks but no one feels intellectually or physically inferior on today's episode we welcome jack gallagher a columnist publicist promoter and broadcaster who has cultivated a career unifying different groups through sports jack is also an expert on figure skating in japan which is of course hosting the olympic games and runs a bilingual podcast on the sport which you really ought to check out it's called ice time it was a pleasure to meet Jack recently and get his perspective on figure skating, his journey to writing about sports, and what the power of sports means to him today. Hi, yeah, I'm Jack. Can you hear me? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today?
1: Good, good.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I know that you're very busy and you wear a lot of hats, so I don't want to take too much of your time. I like to start all of these interviews with questions about your earliest experiences in sports. Did you play sports growing up? Did you consider yourself an athlete?
1: Yeah, my father was a football coach and a soccer coach growing up. And actually, he and Dick Vermeule, who was the coach of the uh, St. Louis Rams when they won the Super Bowl, also coached the Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs. He and my father worked together in California at Hillsdale High School in the early 60s. They they coached the football team there. Oh,
0: how interesting.
1: Yeah. So I began playing sports at a young age, and I played all through high school. I played football, basketball, baseball. I ran track one year. And, of course, I, I played soccer when I was younger, when I was a boy. But basically, that's how I got started. In high school, I again, another amazing story. I became a ball boy for the Warriors. Oh, really? Uh, how cool. Yeah, yeah, and that was through a Scotty Sterling, who passed away last year. Very famous man, a former sports writer, who also worked for the uh, Oakland Raiders and the Warriors and then the NBA League office. So anyway, my connection to him got me in with the Warriors. And then after that, I went off to school at USC. I majored in sports information and uh, public relations. Okay. And uh, that, that pro- the program at the time had three different emphases, public relations, sports writing, and broadcasting. Oh, I see. So, because, Yeah. My original dream was to be a GM in the NBA. Okay? Mm-hmm. That was my original dream. And uh, I studied PR, but just by irony, I ended up being a sports writer later. So, yeah. Oh, I see my, the connection now.
0: And that must have been quite yeah. an experience, being a ball boy for the worst. Who was on that team? Anybody that I've no, – Al no, Adels or any of those
1: guys? no, no. Al was the coach. Al yeah. was the coach. Rick had left in that off-season before I started go to Houston. Okay? I see. Now, Rick was a big hero of mine. I went to his summer camp, uh, basketball camp, three years in a row. Oh, wow. So I was really looking forward to working with him, and then suddenly he was gone, and uh, we got John Lucas from the Rockets. And sure. so that team, we had John Lucas, we had Clifford Ray, we had Phil Smith. So names that you would know, and I think that year, I think we were like – 38 and 44, a good season for the Warriors uh, a few years after winning the championship. Yes,
0: indeed. Wow, what a cool story.
1: And and then what happened was my relationship to the Warriors extended even after I went to USC. So Mm -hmm. what I used to do was I would go to the games against the Lakers and then the Clippers in San Diego and help out the trainer there. So I would see them several times a year. And the first time they came to L.A., Al said, to Dick, what's Jack doing here? And Dick said he's going to USC now.
0: And then I understand you worked for the Clippers doing uh, public relations.
1: I did, I did. I worked for the team for five years, and again, Scotty Sterling is the one that helped me get started there. The first year I was there, I worked in sales because uh-huh. uh, there was no openings in PR. I was promoted to be the assistant in PR the second season, and then after the second season, my boss quit, and I became oh, okay. the head. The head guy, I was, you know, 25 years old.
0: That's quite a rise.
1: Yeah, we worked for the Clippers for five years, and, of course, it was a tough situation. We were losing a lot of games. We had draft picks, and then magically, before my final season, we won the lottery and got Danny Manning, who was the MVP of the Final Four. Kansas won the championship. So all of a sudden, I had gone from working in obscurity with a team that rarely won Now I had the top pick. We got Darrell Smith in a trade with the Sixers. So now I had two of the top picks that were both on the Olympic team that offseason in 1988. Unfortunately, only came with bronze and sole. But anyway, that last year with the Clippers, things started out with a lot of promise. But then after 26 games, Danny blew out his knee.
0: Yes, I remember reading about that. I I, I read a book many years ago by John Feinstein called The Season Inside. I think that book covers Danny Manning's last year at Kansas, if I remember correctly. Uh But boy, that's been a long time, probably 25 years since I read that book. But that was one of the first sports books I read. And I just love that. Yeah. Wow. What a cool experience to work with Danny Manning. He I remember how famous he yeah, was no, in college. He, yeah, so Yeah,
1: he was he was a good guy and a good player. And like I said, I think you're looking very right. But once he got hurt, the handwriting was on the wall. I knew that we were gonna be back in the same situation with so I decided to move on. I and see.
0: That's when I left. And was that when you decided to, to go to London to work for the World League well, of American football?
1: What happened was after I left the Clippers, I that In the summers of 88, 89, and 90, I took NBA players to Spain to do basketball camps.
0: Oh, how cool. What a cool job that must have been.
1: Yeah, no, it was great. It was great. So that summer, I left the Clippers in May of 89, and then that summer, I took several players over to Spain to do camps. And then I moved back to the Bay Area, and I just did freelance work for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then the following fall, the World League <clears throat> emerged, and you know, I contacted him, and one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, I was on the plane to London.
0: And what was that like? Was that the first professional league?
1: Yeah, uh, pretty, pretty much in terms of American football. And it was great, and the people really took to it, mm-hmm. and what they have in the UK, you know, they call it the razzmatazz of uh, American sports. And we had cheerleaders and we played music at the games and stuff like that. So, Wembley was our home stadium and yeah. we did very well there. And <clears throat> we hosted the championship game against Barcelona. We had 61,000 fans. Wow. And that was with no comp tickets. I mean, those were all paid. Those were wow. paid. Wow. That's so, impressive. Yeah. You can find a video of that game. we Dragons 21 and nothing. You can find a video of it on
0: YouTube. And these are all American players that are just not quite good enough for the NFL and playing, or who's who's right, on this right.
1: team? Yeah, it was American players, guys who were like the last cut of mm-hmm. many teams. It also had four European players, which we called Operation Discovery. So we had four British players on the team. I just remember the name of the uh, cheerleaders, the Crown Jewels. The ground rules. Yeah. Okay.
0: Very creative. Did you come up with that name?
1: I did not, but I came up with a lot of other creative nicknames during my time there. It was a fantastic experience for me coming out of the losing culture of the Clippers. And then when I went in there, I had three goals, okay? I wanted to work with the league office. I wanted to work with network TV. I wanted to be part of a championship team. And all of a sudden, I did it all in one year. You want to know the irony of it is? Guess who the color analyst? ABC Sports broadcast the World League those first two years, okay? So Brent Musburger was a play-by-play guy. You want to know who the analyst was?
0: I Dick Vermeule. Dick Vermeil. how funny. You came full circle there, didn't you? He wow. knew me since I was a year old. That's amazing. If I remember correctly, Dick Vermeil was, uh, you mentioned he, he was the coach of the, the St. Louis Rams when they won. That was Kurt Warner's team, wasn't it? That's correct. That was, that's right. Yeah, that's I remember correct. that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And my, wow. uh, both, both my father and I went to that game. I was covering it. By that point, I was working at the Japan Times, but I was covering it. And of course, my father, I got tickets from my father. To oh come wow! To the game. So he got to see from me win the Super Bowl.
0: What an experience for for you and your father! That must have been yeah. amazing. And so, if he was the color commentator in London, he wasn't coaching at that time.
1: No, he, you know, he left the Eagles. He coached the Eagles from nineteen seventy six to nineteen eighty two, and then he was the first coach to suffer from burnout, mm-hmm. just like physical, mental exhaustion. Sure. So what he did for the next fourteen years was work in TV, CBS and ABC and then in nineteen ninety seven he went back and coached the Rams after being out of the NFL for almost fifteen years.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well they say that they say the time away for a coach watching the game sometimes is, is an advantage, right? If you yeah. a color no, commentator, you is. get a chance to step it back from things.
1: And so he coached the Rams for three seasons and then he took a year off and, and he came back and coached the Chiefs for about five years, I think it was.
0: Wow. What a, what a great story about you and your father being able to go to the, the Super Bowl that your father's friend and, and your, yeah. what sounds yeah. like a mentor of yours as well was able to win. That's incredible. He
1: saw my team win a World Bowl, win the championship, and and mm-hmm. I saw his team win the Super Bowl. So How incredible. fun
0: is that? So you, so I understand you're from just down the road from where I am right now. You grew up in San Jose that's and, and then you eventually made it to, to England to work for this world uh, league of American football. But what about yeah. Japan? How did you first make your way to Japan?
1: Okay, so that's another story. After the second season, the World League was closed down by the NFL. You know, in, what, in retrospect, wasn't a very smart move, as you've seen the success of the NFL games in Europe have proven, right? It yes. it sellouts. Now they're talking about going to Germany yes. and stuff like that. But at that time, the owners didn't have the vision. This was before the internet and mm-hmm. all of this stuff, right? 1992, I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. The league closed down, so I went back to the Bay Area, and I started doing freelance work. And one of the projects that I did was I organized the 30th anniversary celebration for Masanori Murakami at the San Francisco Giants.
0: Yes, I was going to ask you about this.
1: Yeah, That was my idea. I went to the Giants, and again, the connection was significant. At that time, Bob Rose was the PR man at the Giants, and Bob was the VP of Communications for the World League. So he and I had a previous relationship. I approached him, and it was initially planned for the summer of uh, 94, but the baseball strike canceled it.
0: Of course, yes.
1: So then it was done in the summer of 95 when I was already in Japan. Uh-huh.
0: So it was your idea, but you couldn't actually make the game.
1: Oh, uh, no, no, I couldn't make it. So, yeah, I planned out everything, but I gave him a prospectus, who to contact, all of these things. And what happened was, uh, at that time, I, was, I had been at the Yomiuri for maybe six months or so, and the guy I was working for was a real hard-ass. He was a Japanese-Canadian guy, and he wouldn't let me go. So here I am, I'm seeing AP photos of the event coming in as I'm at the office, whatever, anyway. But how did you come up
0: with the event, Jack?
1: Okay, here's, yeah, good question, good question. Okay, my girlfriend was Japanese, but one day when I was uh, home in San Jose, after the second monarch season, I was home for the summer waiting to go back. And I was walking by a bookstore, okay? Now, this is, this is bringing everything full circle here, okay? I was walking uh-huh. by a bookstore, and this book caught my eye. And it was Bob Whiting's book, You Gotta Have Walk. Uh-huh. Okay, Aha. The, the cover is very unique, right? very unique on the cover. Well, yeah. so at that point, I didn't know anything about Japan, but I had a girlfriend who was Japanese, so I was like, you know, I better start reading up on this stuff. And so I read the book, and, of course, in the book, Murakami, his whole story is mentioned, right? Yes. So, like I said, I was doing freelance at that time, and I started thinking, what can we do? What can we do? Okay, so at this point, it's 1992, late 92, and I approached the Giants in, I think, late 93 or early 94, saying, hey, it's going to be his 30th anniversary of his first season. You know, let's do something. And so that's how the ball got rolling. And of course, even in several months after the strike season, it, it was a huge success. It was the biggest crowd of the season up to that point for the Giants and no more pitch for the Dodgers.
0: Yes, and I, remember, I I think I read on your website that was another part of the idea that you had, was to ask the Dodgers to alter his pitching schedule.
1: Right, and I, I'll tell you a story about that. i will give you the scoop here now. it's. I think the statute of limitations has expired, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. So, yeah, at that point, Nomo was becoming a phenomenon, right? Yes. And, and then, so I talked to the Giants, and I, I said, look, I said, you've got to contact the Dodgers and get them to altered their pitching rotation uh, after the All-Star break, okay? And I believe the game was after the All-Star break. I'm trying to – I can't remember, and I think it was. But okay. anyway, so they did that. The Dodgers altered their pitching rotation so that more would pitch in that game. Amazing.
0: Yeah,
1: Dodgers And the Dodgers beat – some of the Dodgers beat writers, I was laughing to myself because I saw some of the stories, and they were trying to be like, why did they alter the pitching rules? They couldn't figure it out, and nobody ever said this is why we did it. But I know what happened. So How the funny. Dodgers, the Dodgers changed the rotation so that Nomo would be pitching that night. That's a true story.
0: Wow, that is really yeah. fascinating.
1: And, you know, they got a huge crowd, and of course, I couldn't go, so I sent my mother in my place, <laughs> and she went up to the suite and met Mashi. And so I have many photos of that night, but I wasn't there. The yeah. Giants put a message on the before me and my wife by that point and stuff. So like I said, I got a lot of memories. I got a videotape of it, but I don't have any, I don't have any personal memories of being there, but it wasn't.
0: Wow, you planted the seed, but you weren't there for the harvest. So what was it that that took you to Japan, though? Well,
1: okay, so my girlfriend was Japanese, (laughs) and at that point, I'd been freelancing in the Bay Area for a couple of years. Let me just explain this, okay? Once you've worked overseas, for me, the thought of going back in the States and working was going to become very boring, okay? Mm, just, mm. you know what I'm saying? I like do You got to remember, I was a PR guy in the NBA at 25 years old, worked in London when I was 29 and 30, and so the thought of just going back, some job, even in sports, I just didn't see the thrill of it. Sure. So, so <clears throat> my girlfriend was Japanese, and we came here, we moved mm-hmm. here in October of 1994, and mm-hmm. And we got married, and then I started working at the Omiuri, and the rest is history. I wanted to give it a shot here because I'd come here on vacation in 1993. Mm-hmm. I surveyed the landscape in terms of English journalism mm-hmm. and so forth. And essentially, what I saw was most of the people were just passing through. They come here for a year or two, get experience, they're backpackers, surfers. English teachers, people that didn't really plan to be here for a long time. And so I thought, with my experience, I can have an impact. And I contacted helped Me Uri, and I started working there. And I was there for four years. Then I went to the Japan Times, and I was there for 22 years. And so that's, but essentially, I came over here with my girlfriend, and we just was a chance to start a new life.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great. It was, a chance, it was great. a chance
1: to start a new life. And I guess some people uh, may have thought I was crazy, but here I am. I've covered the Olympics several times. I've covered seven Super Bowls. Is that right? I've covered. Yeah, I've covered the World Cup final. I've covered just about everything. And so I've been very lucky. The way I look at it is Japan has been good to me, and I've been good to Japan.
0: That's Absolutely. I have no doubt about that, Jack. And I'm very curious how you came to write about ice skating in Japan, because you said you played all these other sports growing up, and you started your career in in basketball, professional basketball in the U.S., and then professional football in Europe.
1: Okay, another story. I'm divorced now for several years. My ex-wife was very into figure skating. And so even when we were in the States... You know, we were following it, and that was around the time of the Kerrigan Harding whole situation. Yes, I- we went to a few shows in the States. I even saw some shows in England when I was there. This this interest in figure skating kept percolating, and then here come the Nagano Olympics. So I covered the figure skating at the Nagano Olympics for the Yorkshire's English paper, and then. What happened was, progressively, Japan started getting stronger in skating. It just, with every year of passing, and, and by 2006, uh, Shizuka Arakawa won the gold medal. Yes. And, and the next year, the Japanese women, Ono and Maosada, went 1-2 at the world championships here in Tokyo, and Aisuke Takahashi was second for the men. So it just exploded after that. And then a few years later, here comes winning the gold medal twice at yes. the Olympics, right? And it just blew up. The sport blew up. And what happened was, at that point, I took over as the sports editor of the Japan Times in 2002. Yes. A record for the World Cup. And so in 2007, after this great finish at Worlds, I told my staff, I said, we got to go on the skating thing. This is going to explode. I can see it. Mm -hmm. And we had a basketball guy. We had a baseball guy. We had a soccer guy. And it made the most sense for me to cover the skating because I I was, you know, I had been doing it for many years and I had an interest in it. And so, like, in 2007, that, that following a few months after the World Championships, there was a thing called the Ice Network, which used to broadcast skating. It was a combination thing between MLB advanced media and U.S. figure skating. And so the first year of that thing, they hired me to write stories for them about Japan. And I started doing more stories for the paper. And then by 2014, when Hanyu won the gold medal, I was working exclusively on skating because it became a 12 month thing where you'd have the season and you have the off-season with the skaters getting in their programs and then the early late summer competitions. And so it was, just, it was just non-stop news. It was something to write about all the time. And so I just took the ball and ran with it. That's great. So just
0: how popular do you think ice skating is in Japan?
1: Okay, first of all, you got to call it figure skating. Okay? Figure skating, if, excuse if me. If you call it ice skating, the loyalists get very upset. because Oh, is that right? Oh, my
0: sincere apologies. They
1: think of it as like something people just go to the park to do. Ah, right? I see. But so okay. they're okay. ice skating. The, the regulars are figure skating. Right now, the sport is these athletes, these skaters are superstars. Yes. That's, that's all I can say. They have huge followings, not just in Japan, but around the world. So in 2018, I started my own podcast called I the Ice yes. Time Podcast, right? Yes, I've listened to okay. it. It's a great show. Right. Yes. And thank you. Thank you. Bilingual. And see, the key to me was bilingual because you, what you do not there's a lot of stuff about in here, but it's all from the Japanese perspective. Okay. Right. And so somebody like me can provide a different perspective. They can get access to different people, and that's what I did. So I started out bilingual podcast, and we've had listeners in more than 100 countries. That's I, amazing. Yeah, I can see the stats. I know what's sure. happening. I've had a lot of famous people on there, and it's just a chance to let people hear a different perspective, hear a, hear a, a foreign person interviewing a Japanese uh, skater or somebody else, and it's been a great thing, and I'll continue doing it. My last podcast was a few months ago with David Wilson.
0: Yes, I read about yeah. this, Said your interview, yeah. and I listened to your interview with Ed. Ed Odom, and yeah. I, I know him pretty well. Oh,
1: you did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, You heard about the fallout from that, right?
0: I was going to ask you about it. I was hoping you would be interested in talking about that. Yeah, please tell tell our listeners.
1: Okay, so what happened was Skate Canada canceled all of their competitions last year, just like Domino's. They canceled the Autumn Classic, which is the Challenger Series event usually held in Ontario. They canceled that in September, and then they canceled Skate Canada after that. And then they can't. They skate Canada. I mean, the Grand Prix skate Canada. And mm-hmm. then in January they canceled their nationals. Uh, before I forget, they also canceled the Junior Grand Prix back in August. So that was three events. Then the nationals was four. Mm-hmm. So I mean, people are getting irritated now. This is Canada. And this is their hockey and skating. That's two big, huge sports, right? Yes. So David Wilson is a friend of mine for several years. And I called him up. I was just wondering, what what did he think? And he just blasted him with both barrels, man. It was, like, incredible. It was great because it was nice to hear somebody talk who was so established in the sport, it, it, whatever he said, nobody could do anything to him. So he just, he ripped them, man. And he was saying, escape Canada. The president doesn't even live in Canada. She lives in Switzerland. And he just, he was saying it was no effort made. They just keep canceling everything. So what happened was, the was recorded, but my, my daughter is now a student in the U.S. And she is the one that's uh, co-hosting the podcast with her. So she's busy. So what I did was I wrote it up initially uh, before the podcast was ready because it takes time to do the Japanese translation and insert it, and it's very complicated. I'm
0: sure it is, yeah.
1: Yeah, so once that story was written, I wrote it for Japan Forward, which is the the company I'm covering skating for now, Ed is working there. And, yes. uh, Ed's, you know, I'm the, I hired Ed from the States to come work for the Japan Times. Now I'm working for Ed because he's yes. the boss at Japan. Forward, I right? see. Again, a full circle, right? So, I think Ed would uh, be a
0: pretty good boss.
1: It's yeah, a no, no, boss. great. A great boss. So what happened was, once that story went out, the skating fans in Canada and everywhere else got a hold of it. It was posted on these skating boards, and then it just went to Pluto. And to, to the point that Skate Canada was so rattled, that they sent out you know, a statement, they sent out a statement about it, and they mentioned my name in the statement, and they mentioned Phil Hirsch, who's a legendary skating writer from the States. He's the in Chicago Tribune, okay? He sent out yes. several tweets after it, right? Yes. But in the in the statement, they never mentioned David Wilson's name, <laughs> okay? That's how much power David Wilson has. okay? Uh, they were afraid of alienating him or upsetting him, you know? okay so anyway it was a huge it was a huge thing right and this this went on for a while and then a couple of weeks ago what happens skate Canada cancels the Junior Grand Prix again this is the one in Edmonton uh, supposed to be in Edmonton next month uh-huh. they cancel it again okay now David Wilson's problem with everything as if you read the story and yes. saw, or listened to the podcast was that they allowed the world Junior hockey championship that's right to, at the same time okay so here we go again. It's like Groundhog Day. Next month, the Junior Grand Prix in Edmonton canceled, moved to France. Okay. At the very same time, the same uh, province, Alberta, in Calgary, they're hosting the Women's World Championships. Hmm. What is this, right? What is hmm. this? But David Wilson was right. Hockey is being prioritized over skating because of money. Okay, yes, but that—that yes. that, okay, that's true. But Skate Canada's got to show some backbone, man. You can you got kids, and especially, it bothers me because I heavily cover the juniors. It bothers me when I see junior events being canceled. Okay, so sure. last season the ISU canceled the entire junior Grand Prix. Okay, here in Japan a couple of weeks ago, you probably saw my story on the JSF. Yes, they're not sending the uh, junior skaters to the first three events. And it's just, what is this? We're at a point now where people can be vaccinated. There's all sorts of precautions. And the junior skater, you can't have them miss two full seasons. Right? Yeah. That's just thats too much, right? Yes. So anyway, that's essentially, that's what happened. I called up David Wilson just to see what his thoughts were. And mm-hmm. I didn't have any kind of uh, agenda, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And He just opened up. Mm. But that, uh, that's the thing. If you're... If you've got a relationship with somebody, if you've been a sports writer for many years, you know how to talk to people, you know how to get them to open up.
0: Of course. Absolutely. And so I'm I'm glad you mentioned this because I I was going to ask you about the upcoming Olympics. And of course, there's just recently been this decision to not have live in-person spectators. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
1: Sure. Today, if you go to the Japan Forward website, you can read in English an editorial by the Sankei Shimbun. Okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they're saying that this is a real failure and an embarrassment for Japan because they promised that people were going to be able to come and watch. That's, yeah, you know, it's just like my personal opinion is it's very sad. And what is going to be the vibe or the atmosphere all of all these? Imagine, if you will. <clears throat> Kevin Durant and the U.S. basketball team playing in Saitama Super Arena, a venue that seats almost 20,000, and it's empty. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, you can show it on TV, but it, it, it's just the vibe is not going to be the same. And it's unfortunate. And everybody's trying to blame the IOC, but that I don't think that's where the issue lies, man. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think that's where the issue lies. This pandemic has been going on for 18 months. It didn't just start last week.
0: And I read an article that you wrote, I think, for the CBC in May. And you said, if you don't mind me quoting, you said, the truth is that, this is a quote, the truth is that Japan has never had a lockdown and a state of emergency here is much different than what has been seen in other countries. Besides asking restaurants and bars to close by 8 p.m. and not serve alcohol, life here is fairly normal. Schools and sports clubs are open. Commuter trains are packed in the mornings and evenings with people moving around as they usually do, albeit with masks on. Coffee shops are filled with customers chatting and going about their days. Many are even working remotely from these locations, close quote. So I know it's been some time, I think about two months almost, have passed since you wrote this, but what do you make of the state of emergency declaration? And
1: It's the same thing. And if you read some stories in the Japanese press, you see that it's gotten to the point now where it's having no impact at all. Mm-hmm. People are just becoming, there's so much fatigue. And I'll be honest with you, the thing that struck me as very strange was, why last month, June 20th, why was that emergency lifted, mm-hmm. okay? The, the cases would go up, right? Why not keep the emergency until a week before the Olympics, then lift it? That way you can have spectators coming in. And I would think that people would have felt more secure, people coming here from overseas. Emergency right up until the last week, and then boom. But instead, they did the reverse, and it's a real head-scratcher because, like you're saying, why did they do that? It was clear the numbers were going to go up because they had loosened the... Restrictions on people, but as it stands now, just like I wrote a couple of months ago, it's the same thing. Things are normal here, except everybody's wearing a mask. People right. are going to work, people are going out. Basically, what's happening is it's just the status quo. It's just mm-hmm. the status quo. I live in Kanagawa okay, mm-hmm. which is a neighboring prefecture to Tokyo. Right. But, so I'm like an hour from central Tokyo. But out here now, we're in a quasi-state of emergency, which means the bars and restaurants are open till, or the restaurants are open until 9 o'clock. And so, again, and this has been going on now for quite a while, so you, you just you don't even feel anything different. It, it, it feels very normal. And so that's about all I can tell you. But what's happened, Aaron, is that and what I've tried to write on CBC pieces is that this is being sensationalized by the foreign media. Okay? Mm-hmm. Every Olympics, they seize on something. In Sochi, it was terrorism. PyeongChang, it was North Korea. And here, it's the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so some of the people are using the word lockdown. We've never had a lockdown. We have never had a lockdown. When Abe was the prime minister, they asked him, he said, it'd be impossible here. It would be impossible. And as the number of COVID cases and COVID deaths have been, is uh, small in comparison to other countries. So that's where things stand. But what you have is you've got these people overseas writing these stories. And it's just like I was interviewed, you probably don't know this, but CBC had me on radio, a 12 or 13 station radio set of interviews, maybe six weeks ago. Okay. And from, I'm talking about all the way from Nova Scotia to British Columbia, in one go, in one night, I was on all these stations. Oh, my. Separately. Okay? Oh, boy. Yes. Yeah, couldn't, yeah, they, yeah. couldn't
0: they have just recorded it and just shared 100%. it with
1: Because the host wanted to ask different questions.
0: Uh, I was telling these people. Those it, damn hosts. Yeah, <laughs> sorry.
1: I was saying the Olympics are going to happen 100%, and they were like, well, what do you mean 100%? I said, they're going to happen. Yes. The Olympics are happening. Japan is on the hook for an estimated $30 billion dollars. The Olympics are happening. And so a couple of them seemed shocked when I made this kind of like firm statement. But I'm here. I've been here the whole time. I know what the reality is. And yet you see these websites overseas trying to fan the flames, trying to scare people. It's almost comical because I know what's happening here. I know what the reality is here. And so that's the story. The Olympics are going on. They're taking all sorts of precautions. People are tested before they get on the plane. They're tested after they get off the plane, and then they're tested a bunch of times after that. And if somebody fails, they're put into quarantine. All the, pardon me, all the angst is misplaced, in my opinion, because now we've got all these vaccines. Many of the athletes coming and the people coming are already vaccinated, right? Yes. And will there be some cases? Perhaps, but I I don't think it's going to be much more than normal.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about, let me shift gears just a bit and ask this question. What about the the legacy that you anticipate? You're on the ground in Japan. You've been living there for many years, Japan. And of course, I know that the Summer Olympics in 64 in Tokyo were a huge watershed for the country. Shinkansen is built in all this. And Japan transforms itself from, you know, the ashes of World War II into this global economic and political superpower. But what about this new, this latest Olympics? Do you have any feeling about what the legacy? Will...
1: That's the $64,000 question, right. isn't it? The bottom line is that they prepared well and everything was in place to have a very normal games last year until the pandemic hit. Now, as with everything else, there's a big asterisk. And everybody's going to remember this as the Olympics. that had no fans. And of course, people here, the taxpayers are going to be unhappy and...
0: How can you blame them?
1: (laughs) Oh, no, yeah, no, I agree, but it's hard to see the legacy will be positive because Mm -hmm. barring Japan winning 50 gold medals or something, it's really difficult to see how people are going to be able to put the rest of this out of their mind, at least in the immediate future. Yes. So it's very unfortunate because they've done a good job of preparing, the venues are prepared, the Japanese Mm -hmm. are experts at organizing. And I feel very sad because so many people are going to be coming here from overseas, athletes, coaches, officials, and this will be their only trip to Japan probably ever, right? Yes. In '64, that was a magical experience for people. And this That's time, right. it's just it's completely opposite. I having not worked in sports administration. I know what it's like to put an event together. And then to have everything come crushing down in the final months, it's just got to be a very you know, depressing thing for all these people, done all this hard work. Japan got the Olympics in 2013. That was eight years ago. Yeah, that's
0: my take. My last question, Jack, before I, I, I let you go, this podcast is about the power of sports. And it seems to me that what you're speaking about is the flip side of it, right? When this event, which people have been anticipating for eight years, they've been working so hard for so many years, not just the athletes and coaches, but the organizers. As you say, when it comes crashing down, there's a lot of joy that's lost. And to me, that's something that's a big part of the power of sports. But what about you? What do you think is ultimately for yourself the power of sports?
1: Growing up as a boy in Northern California, I saw it as something that uh, brought a lot of joy and unity to people, Mm -hmm. okay? And being part of a team, being part of something was very important and very meaningful. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, there's a lot of negativity now towards sports because of social media and all this other stuff. And it's very sad to me. And I hope that people can still see the redeeming value. I participating in sports. Sometimes it frustrates me when I go to a coffee shop and I see all these young kids sitting around playing video games on their phone. I'm thinking they should be out doing something in the fresh air. Mm. But this is the world we live in now. But I see the power of sports as being something that can unify people, that can bring people together, whether it's a team or a town or a country. And I look forward to the day when sports can get back to normal and we don't have politicians and medical people determining when events can be held and, and if there's justification for them being held and stuff like this, and this is this really saps the energy out of uh, a lot of people. I think all you have to do is look at the ratings for different sports over the past 18 months and you can see that uh A lot of them have gone down, and I think it's going to take time to try and build them back up until there's some return to normalcy.
0: Yes. You mentioned earlier the the 1994 baseball strike, and it reminds me a little bit of that when I hear you talk about what we're going through right now, because Mm -hmm. I was um, 14 years old at the time, and I was a huge Mm -hmm. baseball fan. You talked about your dream being a a GM for a professional sports team. My dream was to be a professional baseball player. I didn't really make it past little league, but uh, <laughs> leaving that aside, that '94 strike just really shattered me yeah. to the core. I collected baseball cards; you know, I just lost all faith in Major League Baseball. On the other hand, baseball has come back, and, right, and people—it right. may not be as popular as American football or basketball, but it's still a juggernaut in American sports. Maybe that—maybe things will go back to normal someday, Jack.
1: Yeah, I—I ho- I certainly hope so. As you said, that 1994 strike—I remember vividly because the initial Masanori Urakami night was supposed to be August. 20- 20th, and yes. the strike happened on August 12th, and you want to talk about crushed? Yes, that was crushing.
0: And I think you said you went to Japan that fall, just a couple months I later. Did I moved here
1: in October of 1994. Yeah, and so at that point, the event had been postponed, and it was eventually held in July of the following year, July of '95. And when I uh, wrote the proposal for it, it was a three-pronged thing. It was it was an event, a day at the game. A dinner in Japantown and a clinic for kids in Japantown. And they ended up doing all three of those. And it was a reception. It was a reception in Japantown. But the owners of the giants, including Peter McGowan, were there. All the significant people were there. And it, it turned out to be a big success. But again, it's like, I can learn, I mean, to this day, to put something like that together and then just to be a spectator from 7,000 miles away or from whatever it is, yeah yeah,
0: I can see how that would be difficult but then on the other hand you mentioned how sports for you is about unity and and you did bring different communities within the United States together at Mm. that time but then also you've been doing the same thing throughout your career by writing about sports in Japan and and all over the world
1: one other thing Aaron I didn't mention to you was that back in 2004 I started the foreign sports writers association of Japan oh no kidding! how great yeah for about 10 years we had meetings, and we would bring in prominent people to speak. And this came about because I saw that <clears throat> individually trying to set up interviews for foreign media in Japan was kind of difficult. But if we did it collectively, we could get a lot of prominent people to come in. Okay? I see. I and see. so thats I should have sent you the link to that website. I apologize. But no problem. We, we've had a lot of people. We had Kosuke Kitajima, the Olympic gold medalist in the breaststroke sure. gold medalist. He came and spoke, Bobby Valentine spoke, Arakawa came, Mao Asada came, several figure skaters came, but we also had the head coach of the Japan national team, Takeshi Okada. We had a lot of famous people, we even had some foreign. Edwin Moses came and spoke when he was in town, and Dikembe Mutombo. So oh, we didn't just, wow. We didn't just limit it to Japanese, we limited, we, we had people from all over. Anybody that we could get, we did. The point was to try and get prominent Japanese people. We had. The, the man who was the president of the JOC, Takeda-san, until that scandal uh, a year or two ago, he came and spoke. Uh-huh. And so this, this went on for about 10 years. And then what happened was we started losing a lot of the court members. People were leaving Japan to take jobs overseas and so forth. So I just got to the point where <clears throat> it was difficult to get people together because the, a lot of the original court group had broken up. So. Mm-hmm. I think our last meeting was in 2012 or 2013, but Bob Whiting came to the very first meeting. He was the featured guest. I'm
0: glad you brought up, Bob, because I talked to him before we we did this interview today. And and I I had said, I know you've known Jack for many years. I wonder if if there's any questions you would recommend I ask him. And he said, what about Malasada? Why was she so popular? She never won a gold medal. So I was Mm -hmm. curious if you could... Answer that. Sure.
1: Sure. She was <clears throat> Mao was a combination of athleticism, artistry, and beauty, mm-hmm. and she had all three of those in great amounts. And uh, she uh, she was just a very graceful athlete. She was very young when she started out and became successful. When she came to speak at the FSaj, which we call the FSaj. She came with her mother. She was only 15 years old.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Okay, and so her and her mother came. And let me tell you a story about what kind of person Malasati is. At that time, my daughter, about two and a half years old, two Mm -hmm. and a half or three years old, I think two and a half. And so she came to the event with my wife. and We had a full house, and we used to have these meetings in a private room at Lowry's the Prime Rib in Akasaka. Mao and her mother came to this event, and it was a huge hit. I and mean, we had all the Reuters, everybody came to t- some of the TV stations. It was a big event because two months before that, she had won the Grand Prix Final when she was still a junior. They allowed her to skate as a, a senior, even though she was a junior. They, they made like a special dispensation. And she won the event in Tokyo in, in December of 2005. Okay? So two months later, she comes to the event, that was the following year I think I'm getting confused I think it might have been 2000 She was 2006 when she came like a year later but she comes to this event with her mom and she does a great job it was just a wonderful evening for everybody and then <clears throat> she and her mom ride back to Nagoya that I don't the shinkansen a week later I'm at the office and suddenly a delivery man appears at my desk with this huge box and I said, uh, can I help you? And he said, uh, are you Jack Gallagher? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, is "This is for you? And I said, who is it from? And he looked at the label and he said, a thud of mouth. And he had this shocked look on his face. <laughs> so what happened was that night I took it home on the train. Literally, I had to carry it on my shoulder. Right? It was a huge box. Right? And when I got home and opened it, it was an entire box full of Nui Gurumi, stuffed toys that people throw on the ice. And Mao and her mother sent it for my daughter.
0: Oh, okay. boy, that, that, what a great that, story.
1: It is. And in the box was a letter in Japanese thanking me from her mother. Two-page letter. I still have it. And sadly, Mao's mom passed away in 2011, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And so that's a real treasure. But, of course, my daughter was thrilled. And that just shows you what kind of person Mao Asadi is. Mao assigned and her family. Okay. Wow.
0: Yeah. That is that is a wonderful story, Jack. I really appreciate you sharing that. I, yeah. I love stories like that. No,
1: yeah, and it's just, but the, again, what we're talking about unifying through mm-hmm. sports, that's what, <clears throat> that's what I tried to do with the FSAJ was bring people together. We could listen to people talk. We could ask them questions. And so Sadahara O came. Sadahara wow. O came. And we had, what we used to do was we would do an annual trophy to like the top sportsmen and sportswomen and then after that, we started doing awards for the journalists themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was something that was great to be a part of. And again, it was my idea. And I had people who helped me organize it. And you know, something that was contributing to something positive for sports in Japan. That's the way I saw it.
0: That's great work, Jack. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and and my listeners. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are and a lot going on, so thank you for making the time.
1: No problem, Aaron, and I'm looking forward to to the coming skating season, which uh, will have Yuzuru Hanyu going for his third straight gold medal in uh, Beijing in about six, seven months. Nathan Chen, the American, is a two-time defendant world champion. He's undefeated since Pyeongchang. He has to be considered a favorite. But in these kind of big events, sometimes strange things happen. I keep thinking, when I think about this, I keep thinking of Al Order, who was the American discus thrower who won the Olympics four times in a row, OK? Mm-hmm. It was uh, 56, 60, 64, and 68. And okay. each time he won it, he wasn't the favorite. But he got in the ring, and he got the job done. It was something about the Olympics that just inspired something in him. And he was a Kansas classmate of Wilt Chamberlain. Is that okay. right? That's right. That's right. Huh. And there's even stories about him and Wilt challenging each other, who could throw the discus or the shot put farther, <laughs> because That's- Wilt ran track, Right. Yeah. And,
0: and Wilt thought he could do just about anything. Right. <laughs> I read his autobiography way back when. And yeah. and if yeah. you want to read a biography about somebody who has self-confidence, that's your biography yeah. right there. I know. I, know.
1: I was lucky. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you, Aaron, I was lucky to get to deal with when I worked in the NBA. Is that uh, right? In Los Angeles. He came to a few games. And I spoke to him uh, a few times. I had him on the post-game show uh, after the game and stuff. And he was also, at that time, the last three years I was with the Clippers, Elgin Baylor was the general manager. Okay, and he was a teammate of Wilts. So I can remember times I'd be sitting in Elgin's office and the phone would ring and the uh, uh, receptionist would say, Wilts on the line. And so I'm sitting in Elgin's office, one of the greatest players ever. And he's That's talking right. to he's talking to Wilt on the phone. Yeah. How great is that, right?
0: You've you've had some really amazing experiences in sports, Jack. It's it's a lot of fun to learn about them.
1: Yeah, I, Aaron, I'm telling you, I've been very lucky. Several years ago, I was back in San Jose, and my mother said to me, "Jack, you've had an amazing life, and it, it's true. It's true. We all battle each day to get through it. We have our ups and downs, but uh, I've been very lucky."
0: Very lucky. It sounds like sports has been good to you and you've been good to sports too, Jack. It's really great to meet you and get to talk to you. I'm glad that we were able to make this happen.
1: Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity, Aaron, and best of luck to you and all your listeners.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, yeah. Jack. Let's keep in touch. I, I look okay. forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Sounds good. Take
0: okay. care. Have a good yep. rest of your day. Okay. okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that'll wrap up our show today. Thank you again so much to Jack Gallagher for spending the hour with me. I know I learned a lot, and it was great to listen to his stories. And many thanks to you, the listeners, for sticking with us. I hope that you've learned something this episode about the power of sports to unify people in different groups and cross cultures. I know that's the work that Jack's been doing and continues to do with his writing for Japan Forward and on his podcast, Ice Time, which, again, I highly recommend, especially to those of you who are bilingual listeners and can understand both Japanese and English. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day.